You know, as society has, I think, shifted, I, I mean, I believe that it's shifted towards not more light and goodness. I think things have gone, gotten very dark, and I think that, um, you know, our kids, my heart hurts for kids because they're up against so much. Even kids that come from good families, just the societal pressures and the messages and just what they're bombarded with, with identity and their worth and their value and where their purpose comes from, like that's under attack. And, you know, if they don't have a firm grounding and they're, they will be led astray. Welcome back to Hawaii Real, everybody. I'm your host, Yoka Ehu. And I want to send a shout out to our beverage host, Hawaiian Springs Water, for providing us with this awesome alkaline beverage uh, for this episode today. Thank you so much. You can find Hawaiian Springs Water. I put the Amazon link in the description below, so you can go ahead and just click on that link, take it right to you, and order yourself some Hawaiian Springs Water if you're living on the mainland. And this episode is brought to you by the Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association. Native Hawaiian Hospitality Association was founded by iconic Hawaiian leaders who understood the implications, opportunities, and impacts that Hawaii's largest industry was having on the people of Hawaii, Hawaiian culture, local ways, and our state's natural and cultural resources. Supported by the Hawaii Tourism Authority, Naha promotes and perpetuates the authentic spirit of aloha and Hawaiian culture in hospitality, industry planning, promotion, and product development. You're going to want to check out this great organization at www.nahha.com. All right, and we're back, and I have a very special guest here today, uh, Jess Munoz. Did I say that right? Munoz. And she is the president and founder of Ola Napua. And you've been a nurse practitioner for about 18 years. And I mean, you have like all these things you can pull up on your website and see what you've done. Like you've been a speaker on TEDx, which is awesome. By the way. I watched that whole uh, speech you gave. Uh, Pacific Business News had you at the 40 Under 40 Leadership Awardee, Hawaii's Hometown Heroes of 2019, and KITV has you as one of the most remarkable women. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And you were introduced to me by um, by Ed Howard, the guest that I had on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, Ed. Super Ed. He's been very helpful for us out at Pearl Haven. Yeah. He's been really in, involved and in, made a lot of connections and helped us with some important pieces of our project. Yeah. So. so for this episode, it's kind of, I know I like to have a lighthearted conversation a lot of times, but this is a very serious um, tone kind of issue that you bring and that you've been working on. This is your life passion that you've been doing with Ho'olunapua. Um, can you tell the audience real quick just what Ho'olunapua is? Yeah, so Ho'olunapua is a social service organization, and we focus on the prevention of child sex trafficking and providing care for those who've been exploited. So we do work on the prevention side as well as intervention, reintegration, and uh, we are a leading voice when it comes to discussing the issue of domestic minor sex trafficking here in the state of Hawaii. Which most people here in Hawaii don't realize is a big issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I started doing this work because about 13 years ago, I started seeing our local kids come in to the emergency room and we weren't recognizing them as victims of trafficking or exploitation. Uh, but instead, we were often labeling them as truants, delinquents, runaways, substance users. Um, I worked with kids who were brought in by child welfare, kids that were brought in by HPD, 
And these kids were often on the run and no one was really asking what were they doing while they were on the run. And so what a lot of people don't realize is that those symptoms, those behaviors are really an indication of something traumatizing that's going on. And one of the big things that I found years ago was that the exploitation piece was really um, key in what led a lot of these kids to being out on the streets and um, ending up in situations where they were just trying to survive, which made them very vulnerable to the ploys of traffickers and exploiters. And oftentimes that abuse started from within the home. And so, you know, kids, especially girls, uh, don't just run away from home to run away from home. They're usually running away from something to something else. Um, and so, I didn't know who to call. I didn't know who to talk to. So I just started talking to anyone who would listen to me. And um, I met with Judge Browning and Chief Justice Reckonwald. And I said, look, we have an issue in our state. We have a high risk group of kids who we need to be intervening for. And that was how I really got started and saw that there was a huge need, not only to raise awareness, um, but that you needed unique tailored services for this population. Um, and you needed social workers and law enforcement to be able to recognize and identify. You know, when I first started, we were arresting kids for prostitution. When, you know, under the federal law, if you're under the age of 18, you can't be in the sex industry. There is no choice, right? right? And so, but yeah, we were arresting kids. So I remember some of the first cases I worked, kids were 12, 13 years old in detention, and they were being arrested for prostitution. In detention? Mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah, I'm, I'm hearkening back to my days as a patrol officer and seeing um, a lot of the runaways, yep. you know, making a lot of the runaway reports and sometimes finding the runaways or getting the call that a runaway is at this mm -hmm. location and you go pick them up and everything like that. And I, I even as a patrol officer back then, in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, it didn't dawn on me that this was sex trafficking or it could be mm -hmm. a semblance of sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you're saying that's kind of what was going on yeah. in some of those instances. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the studies have shown that within, I believe it's within 48 hours of a juvenile being on the run, 30% of them, 70% will be approached for sex services and about 30% of them will end up in situations of exploitation out of sheer survival. About 70% of kids that are involved in the child welfare system have been exploited. So there's a direct correlation between kids who end up in the juvenile justice system and kids in the child welfare system to root causes of exploitation. Yeah, I don't think people realize how dramatic of an impact that has on that child and the rest of their life. Yeah. Well, if you think about from the perspective of the abuser, the trafficker, the exploiter, you take a child who has been broken down, who has already suffered a lot of abuse and trauma at home, and it makes them very vulnerable. And when you're a youth and you're looking for love, acceptance, belonging, you're going to gravitate towards anything that's looking like some sort of semblance of a healthy attachment. And that's exactly what pimps do. That's exactly what traffickers and exploiters do. They find that vulnerability and they um, they capitalize on it. And unfortunately, we have a lot of kids that have gone through a lot of different traumas 
And I mean, I've worked with kids who come from Section 8 housing to kids who went to Punahou. You know, I mean, it really knows no socioeconomic barriers or boundaries. And I think that's what a lot of people in our community have to understand is it's not just, oh, it's somebody else's kid. It could be your kid. Yeah, and we've definitely had our fair share of, um, what, what would we call it, um, at the private schools, like sexual misconduct with students, teachers, and stuff. They kind of, and it, it spans all the schools, gets swept under the rug sometimes. It doesn't really get focused on and addressed in order yeah. to stop that kind of thing because yeah. it shouldn't happen. And then 10 years later, it happens again. Right. And then we're seeing a repeat of it happening again. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff like that does need to be addressed. Is that kind of uh, some of the things you guys have been taking care of and addressing? Yeah. So we do, again, a lot of education and training. So we try to train on signs and symptoms to recognize, right, risk factors, behaviors, but also how to appropriately intervene, right? Because, you know, there's a way in which you have to report this. There's a way in which, you know, there's... It tends to be interconnected to other act, criminal activities. And so really, you know, we we have a lot of individuals and parents that reach out to us, you know, if their kids have gone missing or, you know, they go, oh, this could be trafficking. And, you know, we always say, sure, it could be. You know, you have a lot of conspiracy theories out there. Um, you know, it's not every kid that goes missing has been trafficked. Um, but it should definitely be on our radar. And I think nationally, I can just say in the last 13 years of doing this work, the awareness to the fact that American children are bought and sold for sex every single day in communities across this country is becoming more well understood. Um, I think we can see just in what's happened in the last um, couple of years with the whole Epstein situation and just the awareness, right, that there is an issue, that it's not just kids and women from other countries, but that it's actually our American children, you know? And it's not just like the pimps on the side of the road. It's high-level politicians, wealthy people, movie stars. That yes. Are, that are kind of funding and pushing this whole thing. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a huge money-making industry, right? And we think, oh, it's the pimps making all the money. Well, yeah, they're making money, but so are the people above them, right? And And this is an issue that if, as a society, we wanted it to stop, it could stop. I mean, there's a way to make this stop. You start dealing with the demand, mm-hmm. right? Because if we didn't have people buying, we wouldn't need to sell kids for sex. How do it's, you... It's supply and demand. So the only right, place right. in the world that trafficking has ever decreased was in the Netherlands, or was in Sweden, sorry. And it's because they adopted the Swedish model, which was going after the demand. So those who got caught buying were their pictures were published in the newspaper. They were um, exposed to, you know, their friends, their colleagues, their family that, hey, you were doing this. And that is the only place in the entire world where they've seen exploitation decrease and was, was when they went after the, the demand. Like and public was, shaming? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the University of Chicago did a study on sex buyers. Mm-hmm. And uh, the two things that would deter people from buying sex were um, that their significant other would find out and that their colleagues or friends would find out. Yeah. No, I wholeheartedly agree that public shaming <clears throat> is a great deterrent for crime all around. Mm-hmm. Like if you know that you're going to get caught shoplifting from 7-Eleven and your picture is going to be posted out there, yeah. you're probably not going to do it. If you're going to drunk drive and get caught, 
And oh, all of a sudden, your picture's on the news yeah. with a list of other people that were caught drunk driving. You're not going to, you're going to think again about driving right. drunk. Right. Which we did for a while. Yeah. You know, and then yeah. the wrong people or the right people had their pictures shown and it was, nope, we can't do that anymore. It's like, mm-hmm. no, those, that's the exact reason mm-hmm. we need to have this kind of thing. You yeah. know, public shaming by putting your picture up there should be part of the criminal justice system. I wholeheartedly agree that. Yeah. Well, especially when you're talking about children, right? You're talking totally. about children who- Because that's disgusting. And now you're going yeah. against society's morals, yeah. not just stealing something mm-hmm. or, yeah, you made a mistake by driving drunk. It's like, no, you're exploiting children. You're going after kids. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. We have about 100,000 kids that are trafficked every year in the United States. And that's a lower number. It's really much higher, but it's underreported. It's underrecognized. Um, and so that's about the estimates, about 100,000 kids a year, American children. Yeah. That's so many. That's a lot. I tell you that there's probably about 2,700 kids at any given time in the state of Hawaii who are at risk just based on our runaway stats and based on the amount of kids that our system involved. So it's, it's pretty high, you know, and we look at what's happening on Hawaii Island uh, we do, we have staff that work over there as well. And, you know, there's just, there's a lot of need. There's a lot of kids that are hurting and hurting vulnerable kids are very susceptible to the ploys of traffickers. And then you add in the drug component and you get kids hooked on drugs and, you know, next thing you know, you just have even more control. Is it a society issue that needs to be resolved also? Definitely. To stop these, this environment of Kids mm-hmm. thinking that they need to look out outwardly or elsewhere to find this kind of comfort. Yeah. I think you look at just the generation that has um, been been being raised in this era of social media and, uh, and the MTV culture. You know the sexualization of young girls, especially. I mean, you have girls that are seven, eight years old that are wearing makeup and doing TikTok and, you know, doing things. Um, and the the reinforcement is, well, that's what makes you cool. That's what makes you popular. That's what makes you sexy. And that's what's that equates to love and did, belonging and acceptance. Did Netflix have that movie? Cuties. Was it Cuties? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that about a young singing group? Or something like that? Yeah, it was a girl who was arguing with her mom and they were having disagreement and she ends up in doing singing and dancing and it's somewhat exploitive, right? I mean, I think the underlying message is trying to say that, hey, we have an issue in society, but the way that it was couched and presented, I think, created a lot of uproar. Yet, I want to say to people who had a lot of uproar about it, turn on the television every day. It's already on there. Look at what's put forward in uh, commercials and in other TV shows that are out there. I mean, the reality is, is that we are reinforcing in young minds that this is where your value comes from, right? And so then when they're approached online, they're approached at the mall, they're approached by this person, male or female, who has this proposition for them that, oh, you're so beautiful, you could be a model. Oh, you have a great voice, you could be a singer. They're just already, it's just so ingrained that, oh, wow, yeah, no, I could totally do that. And you're naive, you're young, you don't realize that um, there's people out there that want to hurt you and that want to use you and abuse you. So, you know, I think that um, I always tell parents, you know, it's not, 
you're not educating your kids anymore about the scary man in the van who lost his dog and is going to give your kid cookies. Um, you are now having that perpetrator enter your home because your child has a cell phone. You know, the average age kids are getting smartphones is eight and a half years old. And that's like giving your kids the keys to your car and never teaching them how to drive it. And they're 13 years old. And so we give kids access and the perpetrator has access and takes and is in now in your home in, in their bedroom through their phone. Right. And so it's very subtle. It's not stranger danger anymore because kids who end up in situations of exploitation and trafficking, most of the time they know the person. It's not this like the movie taken where you're kidnapped and snatch and grab like it's not. It's the boyfriend. It's it's the it's the person that seemed to be your friend that you and you know ends up abusing you, using you. And so we really have to reframe the way that we explain this to kids, which is one of the reasons why we um, worked with Hawaii 5 in 2017. And they did a whole episode on uh, my story of seeing kids come into the emergency room here, but also what it looks like. And one of the things I was very adamant about was that this had to truly present the issue as it is here in Hawaii, that it's not the van and kidnapping. And yes, there that does happen. But the reality is the majority of this is it's a subtle relationship that then becomes very manipulative and kids end up in these situations and it's virtually impossible for them to get out without adults coming alongside of them to help them get out. And, um, you know, and so there's, there's just a huge, I think, disparity in understanding what this issue really looks like. And the fact that the perpetrator doesn't even have to be outside the home. There are a lot of youth in our state that are actually exploited by their families. Mm -hmm. We have, it's almost like 63% of exploitation starts at home. And I think what society has to realize also, and <clears throat> is that these criminals and exploiters, they're smart. Mm -hmm. They're not stupid. The stupid ones get caught. Like the stupid criminals are the ones that get caught doing stupid stuff. The ones that never get caught, they're the smart ones. They're the ones getting away with a lot of the stuff, you know, whatever the crime may be. Yeah. And I think coming going on Hawaii Five-0, it's the, probably a, one of the easier ways to spread yeah. the word about how this goes down yeah. and what happens and how to prevent it. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. You know, I we really, I just wanted to get the cast to do some public service announcements, mm -hmm. you know, just because there's... Importance with star power, right? You're trying to get the word out. You're trying to help people understand that kids are trafficked every day in our state. And so we really worked hard to say, hey, could you guys help us be that voice, right? You're a law enforcement show. You know, we can just capitalize on the fact that you have a voice, get it out. Hey, kids are being trafficked. And then uh, CBS actually came back to us and they wanted to do a whole episode. And that episode ended up having almost 10 million viewers. And it's still, you can watch it to this day. It's one of their most watched episodes. Um, but I also think it, as accurately as Hollywood can do it, portrayed what this issue looks like. Um, and, and I think it also highlighted the importance of the services that are needed, right? And so, you know, one of the things that we've realized is you can train people to recognize, identify, but then what do you do? 
right? right? You have to have a systemic shift in order to, hey, we have a youth that's been exploited, now what? And so the now what has really, I would say over the last 12 years, has been a huge piece of the work that I've been committed to doing, which is really this systemic shift, this systemic change, which is getting the screening, getting the identification, getting unique services in place, and trying to create a shift in the system so that kids that were just couched as high-risk kids are actually truly getting that intensive you know, screening and intervention so that, hey, if they haven't been exploited, then let's at least like try to get them on a path so that they don't end up exploited. And the reality is, is that most kids who've been exploited won't disclose. Shame. Shame. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to give you one of my crazy questions. If you had a um, lamp and you rubbed it, genie came out, granted you three wishes, what, would you, what problems or what issues would you try to fix with those three wishes that you could just, boom, make happen right away? I would end demand, which should people stop people from buying sex from kids. What What is demand? <laughs> those that are buying sex, those that are contributing to why we have this problem. Um, so, like, you would stop the you would stop people from wanting, yeah, to have sex with minors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I would make sure that all traffickers are arrested and put into prison. <laughs> And punish for their crimes. Uh, and then the third thing would be that all kids would find healing and be free. Yep. That would be interesting. Disney had, um, was it Pinocchio? Yeah, where they had that um, go away island that Pinocchio oh, and yeah. his boys went to. What is it called? Oh, adventure, Not adventure, something like that. But, you know, if you've seen Pinocchio, he runs away with the boys and they go to this mm -hmm. island where they can drink beer, smoke cigars, and mm -hmm. play games and mm -hmm. destroy stuff, and then they become donkeys or mules. Mm -hmm. And some people are saying that's kind of an underlying tone that Disney kind of wrote about that was actually happening. Mm -hmm. They're actually talking about mm -hmm. kids being trafficked, exploited in this fashion, and mm -hmm. turned into quote-unquote mules for yeah. you know, sex, drug trafficking, whatever. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty, um, I think the majority of society doesn't really understand the things that are happening in the underbelly. <laughs> like a vast majority I mean, of people I, live in a bubble. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, that further contributes to the stigma, right? That a lot of our youth, a lot of the kids that we work with, you know, they, not only are they not going to disclose, but there's this weird stigma they feel from society, right? And this failure of society that, right, these are people that said they were going to help me and they didn't help them. And, you know, and so you're reframing and helping them reimagine a different space and a different future. One of the quotes you had uh, said in Hawaii Business Magazine, if you see something that's status quo and it's not working, you are not afraid to say and make the change and help lead that change. Can you talk about that? So when I first started doing this work, um, and even before I did this, I'm somebody who looks at what's happening in a system, and if you're continuing to get the same result and you're not happy with it, then something has to change, right? You have to be a disruptor. 
And um, I'm okay to disrupt the status quo if it means that in the end, we're going to get a better outcome or we're going to change it up so that we can at least try something different. And so um, over the years, like I've been okay to make people feel uncomfortable. I've made a lot of agencies feel uncomfortable. I've made our government feel a little bit uncomfortable. I've been okay to shine the light on it because it's the right thing to do. And for years, this is not a new problem. We Kids have been trafficked forever. I mean, this is not new. It's just newly recognized. And we have to start calling it out for what it is, for why it exists, why we have the problem, and what we're going to do to fix it. And we can't keep pretending that it's not happening. And so what I've been really, I'd say, passionately very forward about um, was really helping the private sector understand like this problem exists and that they have a part in this systemic shift, right? Because they're the voters, they're the jurors, they're the people who are going to hear about this stuff and then have a voice, right? And whether it's voting for whoever's going to, you know, run for a certain office, whether it's, um, you know, being a juror on a trial, like, and I want them to be aware and to understand because if we don't talk about this issue, it's going to forever sit in the dark, right? And so I'm okay to disrupt it, bring it forward. And I, I've gotten a lot of ridicule over the years by, even by people who say they want to protect these kids. Um, but it's because I'm like, we can't just say, well, we'll kind of get to that next month or mm -hmm. next year. It's like, no, it is now. The time is now. Every single day, kids are being exploited out on our streets and we can't just continue to live life just like we did once you know, I always tell people, you can't unknow. And so if I can use my voice to get more of the private sector, government sector, to be more aware, to be talking about this, I think we have to normalize the conversation a little bit because it is reality, but there is a way to move people towards action, which is preventing it, and also ensuring that our kids who have been exploited have access to the services that they deserve. And, um, and my hope and my dream is that through this, our survivors will feel empowered, they won't feel shame, and they won't feel stigmatized so that their voice can then have a platform and that they're going to be the ones driving a lot of the shift because I've never been trafficked. I've never been exploited. I'm willing to help make the door open so that those individuals can share their story when they feel safe. Um, because these are human beings. You know, I think sometimes when we talk about this issue, it seems like, well, you know, it just, it doesn't seem real. And these are little lives that are being destroyed. And then it hits the news and everybody's like, what? I didn't know that happens. <laughs> it's like, hmm. It's because you don't look outside. Yeah. Yeah. You don't read between the lines. Yeah. You know, yeah. which I think I, I get what you're trying to say is that it shouldn't have to be reading between the lines. Yeah. It should be in the newspaper. It should be on yeah. KITV. It should be, you know, on the news when it does happen yeah. and it does, you know, make newsworthy stuff. I understand a lot of times, you know, they don't like to report stuff because it's juvenile victims mm -hmm. or whatever, but I mean, there's ways to do it. I'm sure there are ways to do it. Yes, and that's been one of the challenges that over the years 
for us in raising awareness to this issue and being on the news and being in the media and, you know, they always want to talk to a survivor and, you know, one, we would never put a juvenile in front right. of that. You'd almost have to wait for that survivor yeah. to be an adult. And if they're back. even ready then, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. the reality is you don't need that story to tell the story, right? It shouldn't take that to move people to action. It should be bad enough that we know that, hey, this is an issue. We got to do something. Is it because they, they want the survivor because they want the evidence? They want like the proof in the pudding. Yeah, so to speak. I think there's also a little bit of voyeuristic, like, oh, what does this actually really look like? And, uh-huh. and you know, and I think that I get that. But do we make rape victims get up and tell their story a hundred times? No. no. And so you're talking about kids who often are forced to engage in sex fifteen to twenty times a day. You know, with random people mm-hmm. that they don't know. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have them, what, recount how horrible that was? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And so... put their face on the, in, yeah. the, in and the news? When, oh. when who knows who's going to see it, right. you know? And so, um, so, yeah, you know, we've learned how to tell this story also in a way that people can digest and respond. I always, it's so interesting. People have kind of two responses. One, they'll be like, deer in the headlights, this happens, and kind of shut down. Or they'll be motivated to take action. And I always try to make sure whenever I talk to anybody about this that I don't overwhelm them with too much information at once, but say, hey, no, this actually really does happen. A few statistics about it. But then also paint the picture that there's something you can do, right? Like this is a huge problem, but there's something you can do. And the biggest thing is you can go talk to somebody that you know about this, right? That, hey, did you know this is happening? Right. You plant those seeds, you educate your kids, you educate your family members, um, and then you see how you can support and how you can get behind this and call your city council representatives, call the legislature, call. I mean, these individuals need to know they need to know that this issue has to be addressed. I truly believe that if we wanted to in the state of Hawaii, with how small we are, if we wanted to get rid of this problem, we could. It wouldn't be that hard. We don't have that many people here. But it has to become a priority. And it's never been a priority. Part of Ho'olanapua that you guys have started creating is the actual facility now called Pearl Haven. Do you want to dive into that and talk about what that is and what you've created there? Absolutely. So one of the things that I noticed early on um, in our system of care was that we had no comprehensive residential treatment program for kids, specifically girls who'd been exploited or trafficked. So for a long time, we've had to send kids off island to treatment programs on the mainland. Um, We've locked them up because we didn't really have anything else to offer them. We've put them into short-term shelters, which isn't providing the comprehensive trauma treatment that this population needs. Um, and so I had a vision of creating this beautiful campus and space where youth could live and get schooling, health care, education, um, trauma-informed care, therapy, horses, you name it, everything just provided on site. 
You guys have like the comfort dogs too? Yeah. So exactly like a canine program, all of those things. And so um, I had looked around for almost three years looking for the perfect property. And as we all know, it's very expensive in Hawaii. It's a million dollars an acre. And I wasn't finding anything that was working. And then I found out about this property that was owned by the state um, that they were looking for someone to take over a long-term land lease. And, you know, we were 100% volunteer driven at the time and responded to this request for a bid on this property. Did not know what I was doing. Um, And the state actually voted in unanimous support for us to have a minimum of a 30-year lease on a 13-acre piece of property with an existing 24,000 square foot facility for $480 a year. That's all. Wow. Yeah. So it was pretty amazing. The building was totally dilapidated and destroyed and had had just a lot of vandalism. And so we had an amazing architect and engineering firm come to us. They did $900,000 worth of pro bono engineering and design work. And so we've now rehabilitated this horrible building and turned it into this comprehensive place of healing. And so we opened uh, this summer. Um, and we now, um, have this amazing program to offer our youth, um, our girls 11 to the 11 to 18. And it's a place where literally they get schooling on site, they get access to healthcare. Uh, we have all sorts of different therapeutic modalities. Um, we're building out a horse therapy program, a canine program, Um, we have amazing gardens and agriculture and I mean, we're just in this perfect place and it's, it's really, you know, the focus is that it's a place of healing. Um, but girls live there for about a year. And, um, one of the things that is interesting is that when I first started in 2009, there was only 50 residential treatment beds for kids who'd been trafficked in the United States. Now there's less than 600 treatment beds. So the need for comprehensive aftercare and treatment is huge, not just in Hawaii, but nationally. And so my vision is to create this model program that could be replicated in other places. So of course, you know, we do the prevention work, we're in schools doing education, we do all this training, we work, um, our HOKU group services does a lot of work with resiliency and empowerment. We work in nine youth facilities, including detention and corrections. Um, and so we see these kids kind of funnel through all of these different placements. And so our hope is that Pearl Haven, um, is a place where you're really dealing with the core root of the trauma. And so that, um, you're giving kids the coping skills, um, to be able to move forward with their life, to help them reimagine what their future can be, but also that they get the opportunity to experience new things. So for a lot of our youth, they don't really know what they like, what they're good at. And so if we can create healthy attachment to other things, it detaches them from those unhealthy Mm. relationships that the trafficker, exploiter, abusive family um, can have and those uh, attachments that they can have with them. And so um, we've really built this amazing program. And I'm just so thrilled because now we finally have a place for our girls to go and our girls from all across the islands. Um, We also run a mentoring program. We work one-on-one with youth who've been exploited or high risk. So they don't have to be in treatment. We have kids that are homeless and kids who, you know, are um, out in shelters and we still provide that support for them. 
um, and that advocacy piece. Um, we work alongside uh, law enforcement, specifically um, Homeland Security Investigations. Uh, we um, have an MOU with them, and so we actually provide a lot of victim advocacy um, and uh, really want to make sure that we're responding in a trauma-informed and trauma-responsive way. Um, so when, you, when you say trauma-informed, what, do you, what does that mean so, for the layman? Yeah, so oftentimes, um, you know, you'll come into a situation with a survivor, and it's one where you think, well, great, now that you're, I'm here, I'm here to protect you, I'm here to get you out of this, you should be fine, right? Instead of coming and approaching it that this individual still has connection and still feels a bond to their abuser, their trafficker, right? And understanding that the way that you approach them, the way that you intervene has to have one, has to have a lens that understands that, wow, this person has gone through a lot. I need to be careful about the language I use. I need to be careful about the way I approach them. So uh, oftentimes, especially with law enforcement, right, is that there's this, well, we're here to save you, to rescue you, to get you out of this. And it's like, well, she's probably not looking at it that way right? And yet she doesn't know anything else. She doesn't necessarily feel safe. So we do a lot of training and education with social service providers, law enforcement around how that initial response and that initial relationship building starts. Um, and what does that look like and how to set you up for success? But also how do we ensure that um, the youth feel safe, right? So that they you know, ultimately, we all understand there's process and there's a way that information needs to be disclosed and all of those things that, you know, help these cases move forward. But it has to be on their timetable. Right, right. You know, and um, especially when there's that connection with substance use and there's a lot of mental health pieces that go into it, too. And so just helping um, providers and those who really want to help the, this population know how to better intervene and respond. So, and knowing that behavior is the language of trauma. So, you know, when somebody's doing something and you're thinking, God, why are they doing that? That's so, you know, rude, so, you know, vulgar of them. It's like, well, that's actually their trauma speaking, right? And so helping people understand that, create compassion, create empathy. Um, and so that hopefully our interventions will be more successful. Yeah. And I like to use analogies. A big analogy for that particular thing would be like, look at the child that's a bully and is bullying mm -hmm. all the other kids. It's like, why is he being a bully? You have to really ask yeah. and dive into yeah. why. He's not yeah. just doing it because he's a jerk. Like, what's yeah. going on at home? Yeah. How has he been raised? Exactly. Exactly. And it's the same thing right. with, you know, with this population. Right, right, right. Yeah. Same thing. Do you have, I don't know if you have it on you or anything like that, some scary stats for the audience? I do. So, um... We worked with Arizona State University, so they have the Office of Sex Trafficking Intervention Research, and um, some of their research was funded looking at the state of Hawaii and looking at what's happening here. And so one of the things that they found was that um, the average age kids are trafficked in Hawaii is 11 years old. Jesus. The rest of the country is 14.3 years old. Why the disparity? So some of the risk factors were... Um, sexual abuse and molestation within the home, higher rates of incest. Um, there was also the poverty factor um, with, you know, lower income, more rural community. Um, but then also just geographically where we're located, you know, we have, we're in the heart of the Pacific, we have tourism, we have the military, we have international business and travel and all of that contributes to 
a more robust market. Yeah, like higher demand. rates of multi-generational <laughs> homes too. Yes, exactly. And so what's crazy is that on Hawaii Island, actually the average age is eight. And so much younger. And so definitely, you know, we started out educating kids seventh grade and up about mm -hmm. risk and what it looks like to be approached. And now we're building curriculum for fifth grade, sixth grade, um, because we're just, we got to get to these kids sooner. Right. And so, um, the other thing is, is that three out of four victims knew their trafficker. So like I said earlier, it's not the scary man that crawled out from under the bridge. Mm -hmm. It's really somebody that, you know, um, and, um, we have about 48,000 ads, um, were posted for commercial sex, um, in Hawaii in 2019, 48,000 sex ads. Doesn't mean they were sex ads of kids, but there it just speaks to the robust demand. So they also did Arizona. So, well, what is that? What is the sex ad? You have 48,000 um, of those. So what, it's, what is one of them? so basically it's an individual, it's some picture and it just, and it, there's a, a description of, you know, what they might, the services that they can provide that you can call this number and you can basically arrange for somebody to come meet you or they can, you know. Is this like online on social yeah, media or online. Craigslist? Like where, where do people find So before um, there was a lot on Backpage, but obviously Backpage shut down in, I think it was 2018, 2019. Um, Backpage was shut down by the federal government. Um, but you can find it on Craigslist. You can find it on, uh, there's a whole bunch of other websites um, that this can be um, posted. So we have quite a few mm -hmm, that are posted mm -hmm. in uh, in our state. And so one of the first studies that ASU did actually looked at demand. And um, through posting a normative ad, so an ad that looked like other ads, um, they watched to see how many hits it got within 24 hours. And it was like 417 unique hits. Wow. And so when they distilled down the statistics. I don't even get that with this podcast. Like, <laughs> that's a lot in a day. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a lot, and so um, they when you distill down the statistics, they left the ad up over two weeks, but it showed that about one in eleven men are looking to buy sex every day online in the state of Hawaii, and when they've done this in other places like L.A., Phoenix, um, Atlanta, one in twenty, one in twenty-five, one in thirty. So one in eleven is pretty. Huge. It's pretty huge. That's a lot. Yeah. And it showed, too, that 70% of the demand came from 808 phone numbers. So when we say, oh, well, it's tourists, it's, it's not. It's it's a homegrown thing. Did we, it differentiate between island at all? Um, so they did do it on Hawaii Island. I just can't remember off the top of my head. But statistically, it was very similar, even though the population is obviously smaller. So the ASU study was that looking at the state? As a whole? Or is so that a they looked at uh, Oahu and Hawaii Island for this specific study. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very interesting, you know, when you start looking at the statistics and um, just kind of seeing the, the trends and the correlations and the high-risk things that, that we're up against here. And yeah, what those our kids are ridiculously are, high numbers. Yeah. I was not aware yeah. at all, even close, that that was yeah. what was going on. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, it's it's realizing that anyone could be a trafficker, mm -hmm. anyone could be an exploiter, anyone could be a victim. And I think sometimes we think of this stereotypical, you know, like you were saying earlier, the pimp that's on the side of the street, you know, it's like, no, that's not all what it looks like, right? Look at the trial that's going on with, um, you know, Maxwell, right? Yeah. And it's- What was her first name? Jelaine <laughs> or something like that? <laughs> 
Giselle. Yeah, <laughs> just something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you look at it's high, powerful people, right? right? And so... Like these are people that were in the White House a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah. And and that anyone, you know, it could be male or female, right? It doesn't... We always say, oh, it's male. No, it could be male or female, you know? And we work with boys who've been victimized as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't... It doesn't discriminate. I think the big picture that people need to take away from any of these talks is that, and I've I've tried to tell my boys this and teach them this too, is that there are evil people, period. Mm -hmm. Like they just, they're disgustingly evil. There are people that make mistakes. There are criminals that make mistakes. There are people that are traumatized and, you know, they grow up in, you know, a bad household or whatever. And so they end up having problems. Not necessarily evil. Maybe they can be, you know, um, I don't know what's the word taught. Mm-hmm. What you know how to how to live a proper life or anything. But then you have a small percentage of evil, mm-hmm. freaking evil people. Yeah. And being in law enforcement, you know, you see that it's not every day, it's not all the time, but you do see that every now and then. You know, if, if you have the really good, angelic saint type people, you have to have the other end <laughs> of the spectrum. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of those people out there, you yeah. know. And yes, these people are capable of really nasty, disgusting things. They are, and I think that you know, as society has, I think shifted. I, I mean, I believe that it's shifted towards not more light and goodness. I think things have gone, gotten very dark, and I think that um, you know, our kids. My heart hurts for kids because they're up against so much. Even kids that come from good families, just the societal pressures and the messages and just what they're bombarded with, with identity and their worth and their value and where their purpose comes from, like that's under attack. And, you know, if they don't have a firm grounding and they're, they will be led astray into things. I mean, I look at how many kids are now on social media at such a young age and kids are now afraid to go to school because they're being bullied and you know what was you know a secret then becomes known to the whole school because it goes out on social right and so i think kids are just they're not understanding that um you know the access not only that they have but the the way in which that when it goes out it's out there forever right? And they don't, they're not understanding. And I think that the pressure that we put on kids in this day and age um, is really hard. I think it's really hard and it makes it a, a great environment for someone who wants to capitalize and make lots of money off of them and do things to them that um, I don't think anyone can even imagine what one day in the life of one of these kids is like. Yeah. I, I don't think adults realize how vastly different our children are being raised and schooled. Yeah. I mean, just my kids alone right now, their homework and work assignments, they're all on their either their laptop or their tablets. Yeah. Almost a hundred percent of it. They may do handwriting work for math and, you know, foreign language, but then they'll have to like take a picture of it and email that. That's but they're crazy. doing all their stuff online. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to talk about how they should kids should only have like two hours of screen time a day. <laughs> And then now they're up to eight mm-hmm. to 10 hours just for school, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that, but that leads into yeah. being in these social networks and yep. connecting with people. Yep. And they are far more connected network wise with their, with their peers in school yeah. than I ever was. Yeah. Oh, I always think about that. Like, what would I have done if 
Facebook was around when I was in high school or, or even junior just email. high. Like, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> what if you had everybody in your class's email? You know, like it's, it's so crazy. Right there in your fingertips. <laughs> and you had a computer with you and all you're day, nine. every day. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you're online. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, uh, adults today just do not comprehend no. what these kids are going through. And what I know we're training them and teaching them to be successful for the future. We're mm -hmm. not teaching them to be successful for the, for the past. But that also falls into yeah. play when you're talking about online safety. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's what's really scary is we try to be as safe, right? I think parents, you know, most parents try. But, I mean, the reality of what kids can have access to so quickly that they don't even know. You know, and I think yeah. because of the generational divide and not really understanding, you know, how to really set up that safety net and what does that really look like? You know, I mean, parents, one of the things we did during COVID, during the pandemic, because, you know, the amount of sexual abuse material online of youth went up significantly. I think the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children reported like a 90% increase during the first six months of the, the pandemic lockdown. And so one of the things we did was started doing a whole bunch of webinars for parents. Um, our education manager, Tim, started educating parents a lot on cyber safety and what to be doing with your kids being online so much and you know doing school online and all of those things because I think a lot of people just didn't know, right, that now their kids have even more access. Yeah, there's like a clear divide between what kids were doing before the shutdown yeah. and then what kids were doing yeah. after the shutdown. Like yeah. there's a boom. There yeah. something happened. Yeah. You know, and I always say we never would have had any of these shutdowns if it wasn't for the internet. Like the internet yeah. allowed <laughs> all of this to happen. You know, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yep. Well, if you watch the Netflix movie The Social Dilemma, mm -hmm. which uh I think all parents should watch, yep. um it's very clear. I mean, it's you can change uh, a whole political projection by just having, you know, social media. I mean, the power of of social media and being connected, whether it's for good or bad, <laughs> you know, there's there is power in it. Huge amount of power, a power that we have never in human yeah. history have seen that can reach so many people in their pockets. Right. You know, so like you take the Twitter. little mind of a six-year-old or a seven-year-old and they're absorbing this, whether they're seeing their parents on their phone, their older siblings yep. on their phone, they're already starting to hear they're being bombarded with the messaging. And that's what we're up against, really. If we really want to get to the core root of this is it's our kids, their, their future is under attack. And now Facebook's going into... Meta, oh God, this whole vir no, virtual world. <laughs> no. But I don't know if that'll be better or worse because they'll be virtual. So maybe they'll have less trafficking because they will be able to get their gratification virtually. I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to see because, I mean, the studies have shown that that visualization for people who end up buying sex from kids is that they started out with a lot of uh, connection with child pornography and that visualization then becomes actualization. And so even though, yes, it's in the virtual space at first, it quickly becomes in the real life space. So it'd be interesting to see if that is where this goes as all of this meta and all of this stuff moves I'm forward. optimistic. <laughs> I'm very optimistic that it will work in benefit of humanity. 
but who knows? Yeah, we'll have to see. You know, Facebook <laughs> was supposed to be for the benefit of everybody, but that <laughs> took a hard turn yeah. a few years ago. <laughs> we used to just be, you know, you talk about how you feel and connecting with people that oh, gosh. you went to high school with or, you know, your cousin from the mainland or something like that. Now it's just like, mm-hmm. it's a mess. Yeah, it is. It is. And people are addicted, addicted to the connection. So is, instead of taking a defensive on social media, is there a way that you guys have found or are you guys even looking on how to be offensive on yeah. social media? Yeah. So we really try to balance um, not too much of the statistics and the scary part of it, right? We try to use that platform to educate people, help raise awareness, but also talk about the good that's happening and the testimonials of youth and young adults that are in our programs. Um, talk about, you know, other people being educated, law enforcement, social workers, teachers being educated, making it seem much more proactive, right? Um, But also, you know, um, we want to put out a lot of positive messages as well, right? That helping kids if they're, because we have a lot of kids that follow, youth that follow us, and we want them to know that they have a voice and that they can take a stand, that they can be active justice seekers in their community and really putting them more on the, hey, let's protect your generation, you know? So, so we try, you know, and it's a balance between all of those things. And, um, you know, we found that too, too much on the dismal side can make people kind of tune it out. Right. And so it's just, it's balance. Yeah. People don't like to watch things that upset yeah. them too much. But we definitely, with some of the statistics, I think, you know, we try to pick one a week that we kind of hone in on and kind of discuss. So, but yeah, we, we enjoy, um, you know, having that platform to get it out there so that, you know, we have a pretty big following. I think between Instagram and Facebook, we have about 16,000 followers, which is pretty good. We need to bump those numbers up. Yeah, we do. <laughs> what do they say? Those are uh, those are uh, amateur numbers. No, we need to bump those numbers up. Yeah, but yeah, especially for something like that. That's yeah. What would you recommend for parents out there to know if the if parents of like teenage daughters are eleven, twelve years old? So I would say first and foremost, you should know where your kids are. And you need to know who their friends are and you need to ask questions and not, yeah. And not, I I hear so many times, well, I don't want to invade their privacy. You're not here to be their friend. (laughs) You're here to be their parent, you know, and they hear my voice right now and be like, (laughs) F that shit. I know. You have no privacy. Sorry. No, you don't. You don't. And, and, and you have to open up the conversation. You have to be having this conversation, but also like I always tell parents, like, your, your kid's phone shouldn't be in their room. They should be out, especially at nighttime when everybody's going to bed. Central place, living room, kitchen, it's where it is. You have like a Does central charging yep. place where all the phones, yep. okay, plug them all in right here. Yeah, yeah, because there's just too many things. There's too many temptations. And, um, and I think, too, if you for one second are a parent who thinks this would never be my kid, I would just caution you. Don't ever say that because I can tell you how many parents I've sat with, who I've cried with, who was their kid. It's like every parent of a victim has probably said the same thing, right? Yeah. Oh, definitely. 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 So I think that parents need to be proactive. We, you know, you got to be having this conversation 
and more than anything, be talking with your kids. Talk to them about what's going on in their life, who they're hanging out with, what they're planning to do, what are their dreams, what are their hopes, what are their visions. Because if you can start creating those connections, those bonds, those attachments, then, um, and I always say, especially for the dads of daughters, oh my Lord, (laughs) you have the biggest job. I mean, if you talk to so many of these youth who've been victimized, these girls, there are so many issues with just wanting that acceptance and love from their dad. And so they'll get it from somewhere else. It's like boys and girls, but definitely for the girls, mm. for the young girls out there, that there's a much faster and easier route of falling off that cliff yeah. than for boys. Yeah, definitely. Like boys will get in trouble, they'll <laughs> turn to crime or whatever, but yeah, they may get away with it. I don't know. Mm. Steal cars or something. <laughs> Uh, okay, in the last few minutes, do you have anything else uh, that you want to bring up uh, for the audience? Let me go over the questions real quick. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, I think that, you know, anybody who's listened to this podcast, I would just encourage you to learn more about what's happening. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can go online. There's lots of good information that's out there. Um, but be aware and be knowledgeable and, you know, use this holiday season to you know, reconnect with your kids, reconnect with family, build those relationships, build those bonds, um, you know, and, and don't be afraid to talk about this issue because, um, it's, while it's disheartening and it's horrible and it's sad, there's also power when people come together. And, you know, I always talk about shining the light and when you start by just one spark of light and you pass that on to someone else, then you create this chain reaction and there's all sorts of light around this and then it's exposed and then we can actually deal with it. So we can't bury it anymore. We have to do something about it. And we live in a beautiful place here in Hawaii. And I think we all embrace um, just the beauty and the joy that's here and that nature brings us here. But there is a part that we have to expose and we have to get real about because the future of our kids is, is on the line. And bring back shaming criminals. <laughs> do that. That'll stop a lot. <laughs> yep. It's probably a reason. Yeah, it's like you discussed earlier. It's probably a reason why we don't have it because it's so effective. That's a way for you. If it if it sounds reasonable and thinks that, yeah, it'll work easily, let's not do it. We can't do that. Go figure. No comment. No comment, yes. All right. It's been so great having yeah. you on, Jess. Thank you. And I wish you the best of luck. If there's anything else we can do to help you uh, in the future, please don't hesitate to let me know. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, I appreciate the time and appreciate everybody listening. And yeah, check out our website, uh, org. It'll be in the description below. And remember, subscribe. If you listen to it this far, you should be subscribed. <laughs> All right. Stay happy, Hoy. <laughs>